Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about recovery from addiction. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. What's happening, everybody? Thank you for being back and joining us. We took a week off last week. This week, we're back in studio for episode 37. You're listening to We Do Recover. I'm your host, Jared Miller. Let me introduce you to the, the rest of the roster, the lineup, the amazing people that I have here in the studio today. As always, your co-host and medical expert, The Doc, Terry woo, Sellers. Woo, what's up, everybody? Good morning, Doctor. The hottest podcast on radio. Boom, you did it. You dropped it. <laughs> I knew I was going to. <laughs> and of course, the man that makes this thing possible, super super grateful for this human being right here, Sean Denovan. I'm trying to find the blur function to blur all that BYU stuff. So it's, it's a, just be like kind of a white blur. So I'm working on that sound and that effect right now. Go Cougs. It's all about Go the Cougs. U. Go it's Cougs. all about the U. Go Cougs. That's Go right. Cougs. My guy, Jason. You guys do this with your fingers. I'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> and finally... This guy, I am extremely grateful. Like, my heart is full of gratitude. I'm honored. I read this guy's book back in 2019. He had some amazing insight. The author, the TEDx speaker, the owner of Brickhouse Recovery, Jason Coombs. Thank you for having me. Jason, thank you. It's our honor. Like, seriously, yeah. we, we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do this with your busy schedule, everything you got going on. Like, seriously, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, let's get into some new and goods. I feel like we should start off with Sean because he canceled on us last week, and I'm still holding a resentment towards that because he had some kind of motorcycle oh, really? it, run. It, is that why I had a flat tire? And yes. is that why I had shock problems? Because you your yes. karma was on top of me? Is that what was going on? <laughs> well, the, the voodoo doll worked. The fact that I slashed <laughs> your tires and that he uh, unhooked your shock absorbers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Went down to Laughlin, did the motorcycle run. Good times. Fun weekend. Yeah. Hold that on. Would be Haven't you had motorcycle problems for like two years straight now? I feel like this was a, a theme in an earlier podcast. You know, hey, Cherry, what's doing good with you? If it wasn't a night, <laughs> if it wasn't a 1949 Yamaha, it would be okay. Oh, we love you. Stop that? it. You guys are hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. And my little Mad Max motorcycle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Held together like with duct tape. And Listen, that's the, that keeps you going, right? You know, that, it's that more motorcycle H- take keeps you going. It's you, complete HD, all right. It's not not Harley. Da- it's more Home Depot than Harley Davidson. <laughs> yes. But I mean, it goes. Yes. We made it to Laughlin. We did the run. We came back. There you go. Didn't have to tow it. Didn't run out of gas. All right. All right. So you guys just man. I like it. No, I like HD it. Home Depot. I'm a little sensitive about this subject. Uh, it gives, it gives you purpose. Stuff. I like it. And while I was gone, I didn't think about you once. Oh, oh man, we thought about you the whole time, <laughs> and we thought about you the whole time we, you were gone. Man, wonder what Sean's doing in Laughlin. All right, well, let's get into your new and goods. Oh, Dr. me, Terry Sellers. Yeah, what's new and goods? So, you show up wearing all this BYU stuff. I, I mean, don't know. It was a. It's a golf outfit. Let's be okay. honest. I'm okay. not like trying to pimp a school. I just chose blue today for a golf outfit, and I've really chose the shorts, which are not BYU, but have stuff on them. Um, and uh, this matched the shorts. This is the shirt I found that matched the shorts best. So I like it. That's it. I mean, I'm a Cougars fan. I'm not denying that, but uh, new and good. I'm down in St. George. It's going to be 91 or 92 degrees today, which I love. Yeah. I'm not going to be running, biking, and swimming anytime soon. So, yeah, me neither. So uh, for those of you that don't know this, the and we're going to talk about this with Jason, the St. George, the uh, Ironman is this weekend. And it's all over town. I mean, there seems like there's more bikes on the road right now than there are cars, so it's hard to get around. I don't really have anything going that's super fantastic. I just am loving life. You know what my new and good is? Talk to me. We have an Iron Man here in studio today. Like, we have the Iron Man, Jason Coombs. Jason Coombs, what's new and good with you? (laughs) What are you doing down here? um, I'm one of those guys that's uh, like a gnat trying to get... In your rearview mirror as you're driving around, yeah. <laughs> oh. I'm on the bike. And, yeah, don't be humble. Uh, we're we're I'm down trying here. not to run you over. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're my brother and I are down here uh, with our families, 
and uh, we're going to go for it tomorrow. Nice. So we're going to learn some stuff about Jason on this podcast, but before we get maybe into the body of the podcast, um, I was reading a thing yesterday about Jason, and apparently his health hasn't been very good this year. No. Jeez, the guy's running the, the guy's doing the Ironman tomorrow, and he's had a he's had a stress fracture. He's had a ruptured artery and a sinus. He's had, I mean, he's had all kinds of things so this year. What in the heck? Yeah, let's reverse engineer the new and good and call it new and bad. <laughs> and well, new and like good is he's that? here on his feet running the sure. doing the doing the Ironman. But For sure, what has happened, Jason? Yeah, let's talk, tell, tell us? us all about your health struggles in 2021 <laughs> yeah yeah it was like right when the the year started i had an emergency appendectomy oh my god which uh put me in the hospital for a little bit because Ugh. you know one one of the the reasons why i uh i bring up the hospital stay is um when when you put on all of your medical records that you have um an allergy to opioids yeah they ask about it and so i always tell on myself ahead of time so that uh you know, as they're going down through my records, they see I, I'm allergic to to opioids or any mood or mind altering substances. And so the, the uh, protocol for someone who's um, going through what I go through after surgery is they extend the hospital stay a little mm -hmm. bit longer to manage all of that uh, initial pain under their care rather than sending me home with, with opiates. a bunch of bot. Yeah, with, yeah. A, with a bottle of my favorite stuff. So. Like that, that that has been uh uh yeah more more hospital stays than i than i would have liked but then tore my meniscus skiing oh, yeah. in february and um stress fractured my femur and the other knee and and uh, then uh just a few days ago i had a ruptured artery in my sinus <laughs> in my nasa, and i just oh, started to bleed profusely on on saturday after i was I went on a really long bike ride, and then right when I got home. Dr. Sellers, I feel like the ethical thing for you to do in this situation is run it with Jason. Do the yeah. Ironman with Jason, because he will need medical care if anything happens. I just ruptured an artery thinking about running <laughs> yeah. the yeah. Ironman. Are you kidding me? Now, I wouldn't say I've been cleared medically to do this. <laughs> you know, they, They've advised me to not, um, you know. Uh, let me tell you this, what we should do right now, then <laughs> prayers and thoughts, everybody that's listening, yep. the millions of people we have as listeners <laughs> oh, <laughs> or the two of you, like and my wife and, and your girlfriend yeah. or something, uh, I'll share it with my family too. Positive so. thoughts for, uh, Jason running the, the, uh, Ironman tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. God. Much needed. Godspeed. God be with you on that. Run. If you're following us on Facebook and watching this live, give us the, the prayer emoji. Yeah, there you Some go. Prayers for Jason Coons. He's going to need a few of those, but he'll be all right. Let's get into Jason Coons. Yeah, that guy's lived through some stuff, so we should probably talk about it. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. not. We could just. Well, this 2021 thing is just like a, a an easy year based considering where mm. you've been, right? Mm hmm. Tell us about Jason. Let's talk about right now, first of all. Like, just okay. give us a little, who are you? What, tell us about your family. Tell us about what you do. Okay. Brief, brief overview of that. Um, <clears throat> to, to segue into that, I, what I would just add to this whole Ironman thing is um, I signed up at the end of last year um, with my brother because both of us had some health goals. And um, one of my goals has also been uh, in and around mental discipline and overcoming the negative self-talk and the, uh, you know, the desire to want to, want to quit and, and all of those things. And so I feel like I, I, he and I have both gotten everything out of this race that we set out to do because I've had to have a lot of de mental discipline through these injuries and, and, um, tomorrow I'm just going to, go out and smile and have as much fun as possible. I'm not worried about time. I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to beat anybody. I just want to want to do it safely and not get injured or, or anything like that. So I, I think that tells a little bit about who I am is that, that I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, a gold medal finisher. I just want to enjoy the, the event. I think enjoy it's a, such an interesting perspective that you just pointed out. You've, you haven't run the race yet. No. You've gotten everything out of the race you wanted. Yeah. Hasn't even run the race yet. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. That's a real cool perspective 
shift that could help people. I also sure. like that he brought up. So I talk about when we talk about he, he used the word goals, right? right? I have to be careful because I'm my own hardest critic and I'm a perfectionist. I'm hard on myself. So I set intentions, right? Right. So I intentions basically give me a benchmark or a place I'm aiming for. And if I don't hit it, yeah. I got to be okay with that for right. my own sanity, my own mental health. Right? right. So I'm not so hard on myself. So I like that. Like the intention is go out tomorrow, have a good time. Yeah. Enjoy the experience. Yeah. Yeah. I like he's it. already gotten something out of it. He hasn't run the race yet. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a cool perspective right there. I love that. Yeah. All right. So, so that's, that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And, I need um, more. My wife. That's what I need. <laughs> I need down some here. family stuff. Um, my wife and twins, I have five-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. And, um, we're all down here visiting my parents because my folks live down here in, um, the area. So does my sister. Smart people. So it's been, yeah, it's beautiful down <laughs> here right now. Although I'm not looking forward 92 to the 92 degrees is not going to be your friend. That's tomorrow. not going to be my friend. No, you'd much rather have 65. Yeah. So I, I am a person in long-term recovery. I um, got sober and have stayed sober since 2009, March 19th, 2009 is my sobriety date. Nice. And uh, since that time I've um, worked, you know, in the industry, went back to school and uh, used to be a line staff at a couple of different treatment centers. I worked with adolescents. I worked with adults and um, sober living homes and um, worked closely with uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley and um, Dr. Corey Rich at one of their operations for a few years. And that's how uh, we became close and, and, and the reason why he uh, wrote the foreword to, to my book and got a lot of respect for the professionals in the industry that have gone before that have mentored me and, and then, you know, and I think it was 2014, um, I took my, all of my chips and put them on the table and, uh, decided to open up Rickhouse Recovery. And, and that's been a really great learning experience for me. You look great in that shirt, by the way. And I got you one too. Yeah, but it doesn't match my BYU outfit. So that's why I was hoping you'd wear it over. <laughs> why. I got it from a pretty cool guy. Pretty cool guy I met this morning in person, you know, this is a motorcycle rally. I'm trying to make my life sound cooler than it in, is. Oh, in my defense, <laughs> I just barely got this shirt two minutes ago. So yeah. Yeah. you got yours before then. <laughs> yeah, buddy. So Brickhouse Recovery, that's a, a passion of yours, huh? Yeah, it is. Um, work with some incredible, For those incredible watching, people. How does that look now? Do I look better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay. <laughs> doesn't take I much. I just need to get you a doesn't take Brickhouse much. hat. Yeah, for sure. You'll be set. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, a little, a little bit more about me. I, I, uh, got my degree in communications from the university of Utah and, and then went back and got my master's degree in sobriety. Um, and that's where I met my wife. So we met in school. Way cool. Yeah. She's, she's, uh, not a person in recovery and she's not a person in active addiction either. She's just never had it. Right. Had we a, call them normies. Yeah. Normies. Yeah, and, and she for her to roll the dice on me and take a chance right. on me is a, is a really cool story in and of itself, and and then for us to start a family and we live up in the Boise area and travel a fair amount back and forth between our centers in eastern Idaho and Idaho Falls and, and uh, in Boise, so that that's that's a lot about about me and my family and and uh, I was born and. Oakland, California, but when I was really young, we moved into uh, the Bountiful area here in Utah. Okay. So I'm an original Ute, I guess you could say, original sure. Ute tribe. Sure. <laughs> I like it. The running uteruses. It, <laughs> oh, wow. We just was shots fired. What do you, what do you say? Do you just yeah. ignore it? Yeah. You know, we're higher class at the U, and so we just, oh, yeah. we just ignore it. That's it. You know? Getting back to Jason, though, you wrote a book, and we've been talking about this book. We've had listeners that have qualified and been selected, and, and we've I've mailed out personally, I think, a dozen books at this point, maybe a little bit more. The book is unhooked. You mean you're supposed to have mailed out a dozen I, books? I got on them after. I felt so bad <laughs> okay. after that. All that right. day I went and I put them in the mail because it had been a week since we announced them. But they, yeah. And then today I proactively got everybody their book for our winners today. Bingo. Nice. What? Unhooked. How to help a family. Help me out with it. How to help an addicted loved one recover. How to help an addicted loved one recover. What inspired you? Like, what made you decide to write this book? 
I mean, you're a successful guy, TEDx speaker, you own Brickhouse Recovery. Did the book just make sense or was there something that truly was behind it and inspiration behind it? You know, I've always had an opinion about things and, and this is one way to share my opinion about how to help a family member or a friend or an addicted professional or any person, um, and how to influence them the right way. Because I, I have learned through being a patient at five treatment programs myself and, um, and then working in some centers that, you know, I think, I think there are a lot of different brands out there and, and many of those brands are based on one's personal experience, Mm, which isn't a bad thing, but, um, it's also hard to take someone to the top of the learning curve when it's just your, your own life experience. So, so what, uh, what I really have enjoyed is the study of, you know, evidence-based practices and modalities that are used in, um, a therapeutic approach, you know, things simple like, uh, motivational interviewing, um, love that one, simple approaches, like understanding the stages of change and, uh, and then using the stories to power up those stages so that if a family member really wants to know how to influence an addicted loved one, there are more steps than just they're sober and they have to hit rock bottom or they're ready. Um, And if they're not ready, then there's nothing you can do, which is sometimes the message you hear out there. And that's just not true. There are a lot of things you can do to influence someone even in the middle of their addiction. Um, and so I walk family members on how to, how to do that by using these evidence-based practices and then, and then sharing what my family did that didn't work and ultimately what did work to help me. Um, Absolutely. Grow through the stages no, of change. I, I love the, I know you got a point. You say your point first. It's probably way more important. I was just going to say, I love the book. Like, I, look, man, I, I, I I'm in the industry, right? Like I'm in this world. I'm happy to have a seat on the bus. I by no way means shape or form feel like I'm, you know, at the top of anything, but I I feel like I'm happy to have a seat on the bus in the recovery circles. Right. And so I think being in this recovery circle, I hear a lot of people's journeys. I hear a lot of people's stories. I hear a lot of, and sometimes when you hear somebody put out a book, it's like, Oh, you know, you think of it as an autobiography. And I kind of had that first one. I very first, when somebody, a friend recommended that I read the book, I thought you've heard one story, you've heard them all. Right. And, and sometimes I'm a little jaded in that because I listen to a lot of stuff, but, and so I had that, that was my initial thought was, Oh, it's going to be right. Just an autobiography of the stuff he's been through, but it's not, you did a great job through unhooked of using yourself as the example, telling the things you'd been through, and then helping educate the family members. So if you're not familiar with this book, it basically goes, some chapters are about the things that he's going through or the things he's been through. But then just making it all about himself, he really has, he has a takeaway at the end of it, a principle behind it, and how the, the reader can relate, identify that in their loved one, and how to take the best approach possible in getting them help. And that's what I loved about it. It's in, each cha- in each chapter, each part, there's almost like a two-part series to it right? Like, uh, here's me, here's the example. Here's what I was going through. If you can identify with that, here's some things that my family did do that didn't work. Here's some things that did work. I loved it. Like the structure of the book. I absolutely loved. It was awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for very sure. Much. Yep. It was a way better point than mine. <laughs> Go ahead. What was your point? <laughs> it totally was a way better point than mine. I, I agree with you completely on the book. Um, but I think, you know, we hear this all the time. We hear the thing that Jason just brought up, and that is, you know, when somebody leaves treatment early, for example, you commonly hear, uh, particularly from sometimes frontline staff, right? Not necessarily, um, frontline staff is not necessarily uh, educated in like motivational interviewing tips and you know those sorts mm-hmm. of things so but the but front and i don't mean to say frontline staff because i've heard it from non-frontline staff right they weren't they just weren't ready yeah and then jason just said that's just not true like first of all i don't work at any treatment centers where anyone is forced to be there so there has to be some at some level where they were ready because they came in right right i mean they they want to be ready so I think that's a fallacy that we hear repeated all too often is they're just not ready. Or maybe it's we're just not equipped enough to help them 
achieve the goals that they came in for. They came in for a reason. Yeah, yeah. You, you bring up a really good point, and, and I, I, I can see it from both sides, right? Because working as an intern substance abuse counselor, there are two types of people that I, I try to identify first thing when I meet somebody. Is this person internally motivated or are they externally motivated? In other words, are they here on their own accord? Are they a self-admit? Or has the courts and the judicial system said, look, go to jail or go to treatment? And in Jason's book, I really it helped me as a, a professional growing into this industry, right? To really take a look at, t talk to me a little bit about the chapter that talks about right? You, you want to work with them. It's camaraderie. It's, it's collaboration versus confrontation. Tell me about that. Um, yes. <clears throat> so one of these principles that, uh, that ha have really helped me grow into this industry as well. Um, cause I think, I think we all come into this industry and we kind of slobber our way through, especially as we're Guilty. people in recovery because, um, what worked for us, we think is going to work for all. And, and it, it just ne doesn't necessarily, um, happen that way. And, uh, so there, there's always this ambivalence when it comes to treatment. Like you brought up Dr. Sellers, when someone checks in, they might've been, um, absolutely ready and willing for, for that day. And then they revert mm. back to the, pre-contemplation stage of change the next day and they don't want to be there anymore but they know they won't have a home to go go to or the judge is going to slap their wrist and hand if and put them in jail if they leave and so it can shift from being internally motivated to externally motivated on a daily basis on an hourly sure. basis and so great point being able to actually identify and honor and validate one's ambivalence to change helps us to have a greater empathy and, and lean more into the uh, principles that an approach to influence someone will actually uh, manifest because those comments like, Oh, they're just not ready. They're just, they just need to go hit rock bottom. And then when they hit rock bottom, hopefully they'll, they don't die right. and then they'll come back and they'll be ready. Well, um, a lot of people die. I think that's that. a great point. Rock bottom for some people is death. Mm -hmm. So we got to not just in the treatment industry, we cannot just allow people to go hit rock bottom because the rock bottom for some people is the dead end. Yeah. Dead. And, end. and the, the other piece to just the metaphor rock bottom has some flaws to it as well, because what, uh, like you said, one rock bottom to one person means something totally different to another. And, and the, the back to the motivation, um, whether it's internally or externally motivated, the entire point is we can only influence someone um, when there is a collaboration and a, and a spirit of unconditional positive regard or unconditional love with someone, which means that um, we have to recognize that we may know the solution for someone to get sober and we could lay it at their feet. But how do you get someone to want to pick up the, the tool and want to work the steps or want to surrender or want to go to meetings? How do you help with the want? Because they can do it out of compliance. Um, we've all done that. You know, my first four rehabs were compliance based. I had to do it or else X, Y, and Z were the consequences. And so I chose to go um, to avoid those consequences. But there's something extremely different between recovering on your own volition Dr. McCauley talks a lot about this in Memo to Self um, to ver versus doing it for someone else or doing it to please someone else on your own volition. And, uh, and that experience for me, if, if I may share it, um, happened after a lot of offenses were put in place by my parents. They were taught how to get off the beach, which I uh, share in my book about boundaries and, and essentially how to 
um, help someone who is in the pre-contemplation or contemplation or preparation stages of change, which are those preliminary stages of, I don't, I don't have a problem or I think I might have a problem, but I can still control it or, okay, I have a problem. I need to do something about it, but they're not doing anything about it yet. And when, when your loved one is in any one of those three stages, which is really like almost 99% of the population, we, uh, you know, we have to meet them where they're at. Absolutely. Sorry, I I, forgot to warn you about the timer's about to go off. I didn't see it either. We're going to get to what Jason's talking about in part two. So stick around, join us. We'll see you after this little 30-second break. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller, sponsored by Steps Recovery Center and the Hilton Garden Inn. I'm Desmond Lomax, one of the clinical executives here at Steps Recovery, and once you become of the Steps family, you're just a part of the Steps family. A lot of us have overcome substances, overcome addiction, and now we're able to help other people. Second of all, we're also going to help you in a way where you can afford to be helped. Third of all, we're going to give you the same quality that many organizations are charging two to three times, and it's more about you than it is about our organization. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller, co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. Ooh, Jason Coombe left us on a hot one in that part one. I tell you what, I'm excited to get back to it in part two. Before that, though, we got to do a little sponsorship mention. So episode 37, part two is brought to you by the Hilton Garden Inn. It's always sunny and bright at the Hilton Garden Inn in St. George, Utah. If you're traveling through southern Utah, bust out your phone, bust out your tablet, your laptops, give them a Google search. Just type in Hilton Garden Inn, St. George, Utah. They have amazing amenities. Yeah, love them. Awesome place. We also have to announce some winners, Doc Sellers. We got winners? We got some winners. Okay, well, we got a loser that won. The book, though. Let's get the book up there so that people can see the the book that they've won. Okay, they've won a copy of Jason Coombs' book, Unhooked, which I promise not to call Unhinged. I watched Unhinged, the movie, about last weekend. (laughs) And it's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's Russell Crowe, and he has a road rage thing, and he just... Totally messes up some girls' the book's life way and better. family. I promise. Yeah, the book's way better. I, uh, all the way over here, I'm like, I know I'm going to call that book unhinged one of these times. <laughs> so if I do, I apologize. But uh, three people have been drawn in our contest for copies of Unhooked by Jason Coombs. And they are Lisa Ressler, Pam Gold, and the loser that con- that canceled golf on me today, <laughs> Ty Empey. That's hey, right, take Ty. Take it easy on Ty. I was sad to hear that Jared has already mailed your book. Otherwise, I would have him delay it because you're a loser today. <laughs> but uh, I'll find somebody to play golf with. So that's our winners today, and uh, congratulations to those folks. Sounds like you could need to work on resentment. Though, I do. Doc you better believe I do. <laughs> got to cancel golf on me. Yeah, but that's a resentment. I'm going to hold on to that for 10 years. Congratulations to our winners. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. It's an amazing book. I can't wait for you guys to get your hands Sorry on it. Sorry for the sudden burst of energy. And we have <laughs> the author here in studio. Yeah. Super grateful for that. Let's get right back into it. I wanted to point something out. Coombs was, he. is that okay? Are we, yeah. we cool? We, we, oh, we we're boys? We're Knuckles? So cool. All right. So I'm going to call him Coombs. I know Coombs, he was a. Uh, you know, a nickname you went with, right? So Coombsy here, he he was dropping gold on us there for a sec. He's talking about the f- the five stages of change, and he's talking about how people that are forced into this thing, right? It doesn't always work. And let me just point something out because I feel cool that I go to school, right, and I get to study this stuff. Super grateful for my life today, guys. Oppositional defiance is a real thing. Okay, if if we approach this thing as like that a lot of people have dealt with this for a long time. I'm the authority figure. You do what I say. Guess what's going to happen? Oppositional defiance. No therapeutic alliance. Absolutely. And that's what he was hitting on. And I loved it. Right. He's talking about a collaborative approach. How can I help you to attain your goals? Right. And self-efficacy. It's another thing that he talks about in his book. I believe that you have the ability to do this. How do I help you? 
right? It's not on us. It's them. It's their recovery. Right. We just get we just get the ability to help them along the way. Yeah. Let's get back into that. It's a great, it's yeah. a great point. Um, let me point one thing out I, uh, that that was struck me in this first segment is uh, it was mentioned that you know people come in at a certain stage of change and maybe the very next day they have moved to a different mm. stage of change, maybe a, lo- a lesser stage of change, right? That doesn't always happen either. Sometimes it's just that they still want what they want, but fear has crept in. And it's not that they've changed their motivation for change other than the fact that they're now scared of what that's going to look like. Not that they don't want the results, but they're afraid of what that looks like. And that happens to us all the time. Like we're weighing the consequences of not changing versus the consequences of changing. Right. Right. And sometimes we get afraid of those consequences of change. It doesn't mean our internal motivation has gone away necessarily, but sometimes we just get afraid. Yeah. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's I mean, we're afraid of what life's going to look like without my drug, which was my best friend, which became really important to me. Yep. Sometimes we got to grieve that loss too. Right. Yep. No question. Okay. So uh, we were talking about, first of all, you mentioned get off the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get I off want to the know beach. what that means. That's like some code word, Jason Coons. Yeah. Like, tell us, what does that uh, even mean, Sellers bro? Like, Dude, tell me to get on the beach. I want to get on the beach. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Florida, right? So I'm, uh, I'm, I, I don't ever beach. get off the beach. Listen, yeah, yeah, listen. Yeah. Seller spends a lot of time on the beach in golf courses because he hits it into the sand. Uh, oh, yeah, I heard, you I see heard. what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think your meaning has something a little different, right? Yeah. Tell us about because when we were golfing with Ty Empey this morning. That's right. He was telling us about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that resentment just got gigantic. I wow. love this guy. I'll never get over that resentment. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. So help us with that concept. So how do you help an addicted person want to recover? That's really what it should say. How do you get them to want to? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that is, I think, where... Um, there is that rub with family members and, and professionals that start to um, impose ideas and um, create resistance yeah. in the, the person who's addicted because it, it, it's more about confrontation and less about collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so when my parents were in their first uh, family program, when I was in my first treatment center, I went in in the pre-contents pre-contemplation stage of change. So I didn't have a problem. My charges from being a patient of Utah's largest Oxycontin drug ring and then getting charged with four felonies and a couple misdemeanors and then being sentenced, um, mandated to treatment. Slow down. You were a part, spoiler alert, like that's crazy. You were a part of you say that again. Well, you'll have to read the book. There you go. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) No, no, no. Listen, He's read the book. I have. He's trying to speak for our audience who may not have read it yet. Yes, and that was a comment to the audience. Yes. You got to read the book. Um, Oh, there you go. But in there, you know, it it goes through that process of when I was in pre-contemplation, what caused me to move through the stage of of change to contemplation and to really consider change for myself, even though I wasn't acting, I wasn't. I wasn't taking any action in recovery was a certain amount of consequences piled up. And you would have thought that getting charged with multiple felonies and a few misdemeanors for being a patient in, in this drug ring would have done it. Um, However, that did not do it. It just moved me into the contemplation stage of change. So there was a lot of years where I was ambivalent, where I still wanted the benefits of using, but I also wanted the benefits of quitting because I hated going to jail and I hated homelessness and I hated what I was doing to my family. And it was in that space that I think where most family members lose their mind because they're really trying to see an outcome of sobriety and long-term recovery and they don't see it. And so they feel like anything they try or do is a waste of time and any rehab or counseling services or anything is a waste of time because they don't, they're not seeing the expected result, but that work is really hard for the addicted person because the contemplation stage of change and leading up to the preparation stage of change into action is some of the hardest work because it's like 
giving up sugar. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to give up sugar, but there are also a lot of reasons to not. And, you know, what is it going to take for you to give up Dr. Pepper? Right. What, what would it take? Right. No, did you see me grab my Dr. Pepper when you said give up sugar? <laughs> yeah. I, did yeah, that I mean, on purpose. for someone to say, hey, you got to stop that. It, and it's my idea, not yours. Right. Have you ever tried to stop I drinking? Have. Yeah. Yeah. And you probably really wanted to. I can do it, though. But it's like drugs and alcohol to me. I can do it. Anybody can do it for a minute. Yeah. But, but, how did, but to want to stay stop. stopped, right. to want to, right. is, yeah, a, to is kind of the, the idea here is right. like, you know, you, we can get you to be compliant to give right. it up. But, but until there's enough volition within yourself to want to change, and maybe that's, you know, extreme consequences to your health before you're like, okay, I'm going right. to switch to water or whatever. Right. And I've got nothing against Dr. Pepper, by the way. I have an energy drink addiction myself. So I'm just a good example. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm really looking at the same, uh, struggle with all of these, these, uh, areas of my life that hold me back. And Jason, I want to paint a really clear picture for our listeners here. Pre-contemplation looks like this. I say to you, Jason Coombs, you might have a problem. I don't got a problem. You're my problem. I, uh, <laughs> I think you, you might have you a said problem. That, Jason you're my Coombs. problem. Okay, so that was pre-contemplation. Jason Coombs just gave us a great example of pre-contemplation. What is, they won't even consider it, right? It's not even they're not, they're not even willing to look at it. What yeah. is the concept of an intervention when you sit in a group in a room full of a group of people that are telling you to stop drinking and they're the reason you drink in the first place? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is a that That's is a pre-contemplation. Great, good yes. point. So then contemplation. Jason Coombs, you might have a problem. No, I don't. But in my quiet moments, I'm thinking. When your head hits the pillow at night and there's no other voices, you think what? I'm thinking, man, maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't smoke crack. Maybe I should just drink. Yeah. Or maybe when you go on a boat trip with your family and you bring along just enough yeah. pills to get you through that trip yep. so that you don't go into withdrawals and then you consume them all way too fast and you end up going through withdrawals. This may or may not be an example straight out of the book. Yeah. The, your contemplation starts telling you what? That, uh, you know, that the, the battle in the brain is saying, I'm, I'm going to just take enough because I'm going to control it this time and I'll quit when I get back. Um, and so it's this process of punting to the next mm. day or to the next week or to the next year or whatever. Because I, I don't know a lot of people who are in addiction that love it. And and when you when you run out, yeah. you might go, holy cow, I think I might have a problem. Right. Right? Exactly. The That's pain. when the solid the solidarity of contemplation hits. Yeah. Boom. So as a as a family member or an influencer, whether you're a treatment provider or just a, a employer or a good friend of this person, um, back to how do you get them to want to. So my parents were in their first family program and the counselor said, Jenna and Doug, uh, imagine Jason being out in the middle of a lake and with every boulder he's dropping into the water with his addictive behavior, he doesn't have a care in the world. He's just doing his thing out there. And you guys are standing on the beach yelling to him just to stop. Mm. And those ripples are, um, gaining size and momentum by the time they get to the beach, they're tsunami size and they're pounding over your parents' head. And, <clears throat> and so she explained this to my parents and, and then she said, Jana and Doug, you do not have to stand there, get off the beach. Well so enough. move, move to higher ground, like get out of the wake of, of damage so that Jason can experience the natural consequences of his actions. And so this is a, uh, a far cry from enabling. This is definitely about boundaries. This is definitely, definitely about allowing someone their internal rock bottom. Yep. This is about allowing someone to experience pain when you feel like wanting to rescue them, but all the while taking the approach of collaboration and, and, uh, inspiring them and, and, that all comes through trust and rapport. So every approach that I describe in the book that works is based on trust and rapport with an addicted loved one. And that's two very different things. Trust is, I trust you have the ability to help me. So a lot of, a lot of people might come into treatment and say, I trust that you have the ability to treat me, but rapport is, I trust that you know how I feel 
and you know what I'm going through. And it's only when you have trust and rapport is where those connections are made. Because if there's no rapport, there's not a lot of, of uh, self-efficacy that can be evoked, mm-hmm. um, which is one's confidence about staying sober and one's desire to do the work that it takes to not just stay sober, but to transcend addiction and to become a professional like yourselves to uh, give back to the community. And, and that takes volition. And so how do you help someone's volition? Like, that's really what we're talking about. How do you help someone want to change? Right. Right. How do you get them to the point where they are motivated to change? And I love that you pointed that out there and a great example. Okay. So maybe for some families or, or loved ones that are listening to this, if I go out and I am trying to acquire a controlled substance and I get arrested, okay, I go to jail. I'm sitting in jail and maybe I'm moved in from the pre-contemplation to com- contemplation. I'm saying while I'm sitting in my jail cell, maybe I do have a problem. Maybe I do need to make a change. And then I find out that this person that loves me to death and with, with the best intentions decide to bail me out, they just save me from my natural consequences. I then get to move back from contemplation right back into pre-contemplation. Yeah, that's, that's right. Pro- my that's problem's talking not that about. bad. Right. I spent 24 hours in jail. It's not that bad. Right. Right. I'll control it better this time. Yeah. I'm not going to be so stupid and get yeah. caught or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. why is volition so important? Yeah, you know, if you're going to drop 50 pounds to go to the gym, you know, without <laughs> volition, how's that going to happen? Yeah. Somebody's got to be willing to get on that treadmill and sweat. Mm. Can't be your trainer. Is that why I'm not losing weight? you know it 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 all comes down to willingness like and not just willingness with lack of vision i think volition is deeper than that it's and sometimes we have a bag of reasons why it's not just one reason why like why do you want to get sober that's asked a lot in treatment and people say i will for my kids which i think is valid Mm -hmm. totally but what happens when that reason isn't big enough yeah. in that moment, yeah, what happens? you need to grab a, another reason why and pull that out. And sometimes you're just digging in your bag of whys right. um, over and over until you find one that's, that's big enough. And, and that all shifted for me when I was uh, at the height of my addiction, I was in and out of jail. So I couldn't stay sober and I was in drug court up in Davis County. And, <clears throat> and I was this close to going to prison because I just could not stay sober. And, uh, I, I found out that I was going to be, um, having a son and, uh, little boy named Nathan, little boy named Nathan. And when he came into the world, I I had a real emotional upheaval. Um, and it was an experience that I hadn't had before where I could love someone unconditionally. And, and until I had a child of my own, I didn't realize what that, that, felt like. I um, think the real volition, if I may, Jason kicked in reading that chapter is gut wrenching, dude, especially for me. Cause I, I got my own bag of things right in my personal life that I am working with and through, but it was gut wrenching just to, to know that you're looking forward to being a father and I won't, you know, spoil the book cause I think it's important for people to read it and discover it on their own, but just everything that was going on during that time. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the real I got to admit, like I'm, a, I'm, <laughs> I like to think I'm a pretty tough dude, but I was in tears. I, like not, I was choking back some tears dude. during that chapter, man, because that was very heartfelt. I felt your pain in that. And that had to have sparked something inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly what happened. Um, and for seven days he was in the hospital struggling to breathe on a respirator. And, and, uh, for seven days I fought the, uh, my heart and fought love because I didn't want to love him. I didn't, I didn't want to love him because I knew that in seven days when he was released, um, I was placing him for adoption. Yeah. And I knew that that was going to rip out my, my soul, just the the pain of, of placing a child up for adoption. Um, and the shame that goes with that because I was an unfit man to rise up and be a dad. 
Um, That's the negative self-talk you told yourself at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of bring it full circle, it sounds like you're in a place where you've written this book now. You're no longer there, right? And in your relationship with Nathan, there's a relationship. Yeah. Because you were able to find some volition and because you were able to move through these stages of change internally motivated. Yeah. When Nathan was born, I went, I went down into um, my car and uh, wrote him a letter. And in that letter, I made him a promise that I would change my life for him. And, and someday um, I would find him um, maybe when he was 18 and I'd sit him down and I would share with him all the reasons why um, I placed him for adoption. And uh, he and I now have a powerful relationship because those promises I was able to, to keep, but not right out of the gate because although I made him those promises that night, it still took me another two plus years for that volition to be enough to um, surrender and to check into treatment one more time and to go through the process of trying the steps, which I was convinced would not work. Well, they don't work. I knew they wouldn't work because right. I had tried them, which I hadn't tried them. Right. Um, you dipped your toe in the pool. I read them off the wall. Yeah. <laughs> dipped your toe in the pool and thought you'd tried swimming. Exactly. Yeah. But I had no relationship with, with God and, right. and uh, my faith was in drugs and in, in my other addictions. And so, yeah, that to, to make that really long story um, brief, the, the placing my son for adoption, the promise that I made him in that letter was the gift of volition that I needed, the gift of I'm going to change for him, for him. like for me, for him. Right. It's not because of the judge or my wife or my uh, or ex-wife and not because of my parents. It wasn't any of that like it had been before. This was now about something that really mattered to me. This was the first thing that mattered to me because my life didn't matter until that day. And so that's where, that's where this process um, of volition for me was inspired. And it doesn't have to be that heavy and dark and deep and painful to find that volition. Cause I think volition is a choice and the feeling can come later, just like love and trust can be a choice. And then the feelings come later. It's kind of that act. It's kind of that act as if theory, right? Act as if your life was this way or fake it till you make it. I hate when people say that, but that kind of thought, like, like you're saying it, it, you, the feeling doesn't have to be there. You can make the choice and then grow into it yeah. and embrace it as you're doing it. Yeah. Act as if. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I would just want to point out the clinical, you know, the counselor in me wants to point out that letter that you wrote that day sitting in that parking lot was a hundred percent as important for you as it ever would be for Nathan. Yeah. For sure it was. And that's what we're talking about. Your loved one needs to work with your loved one until they find that moment, whatever it looks like for them to be enough to make them want to transcend. That's right. Let's talk about transcendence. Yeah. Good. Great segue. I can't even spell transcendence, Dr. Sellers. I but can, but that's all right. <laughs> I know how to find my spell check. So that's all that go. really matters. Sure. Right? But yeah, you know, how that relates to transcendence is is when one wants to change bad enough, um, they'll continue to try over and over and not throw in the towel and not give up. And, and that was my experience until finally um, it, it took for some reason. And I think that a lot of pride had to be stripped out of my life. And that's what my parents did during those seasons by getting off the beach and putting on their emotional raincoat and uh, strong fences make, make great neighbors. So they put up tons of physical boundaries around their home, alarm system. They stopped giving money, stopped paying my bills, all of those things. But they said, we love you, son. So they reinforced their love by showing love for themselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, when, I, when I think about addiction recovery, I don't think about the guy that, uh, that I see in his... 80s who you know still hides out in the aa lano club you know smoking cartons of cigarettes a day that is just hanging on um i want i wanted a life when i got sober i wanted vision of mm. 
what what sobriety, what recovery could mean for someone that is thriving, someone that is transcending the chains. And, and I had a few examples of that. One was my good brother, Tim Border, who shared about his life um, boating with his sons and how he was still throwing backflips on wakeboards and he was skydiving with his sons and he was a university professor and, and that really impressed me. And so I set out to, you know, do things like I'm doing tomorrow and yes. challenge myself. And so I think this is the critical point for me of the book and of what I see out of your life right now, because there is a difference between sobriety and recovery. There is, you can sit on your hands and you cannot use crack or you cannot shoot heroin or whatever and sit on your hands. I don't want that. Like, I don't want any part of that. That doesn't sound fun at all. Recovery has to be about, and that's what I hope the central theme of the entire podcast, not just this, this podcast today, but our entire podcast is recovery has to be about fun. It has to be about life. It has to be about meaning and emotions and finding your purpose. Yeah. That's I right. think that's what you're showing people. Yeah. And where you find your, your purpose is, is by sharing this with others, doing exactly what we're doing today, you know, yeah. Beautiful. Is, is passing it along. Beautiful. I wish we had another hour. Yeah. But we're about out of time, so I'm going to turn it over to Jared to take us out. Well, I just want to say thank you. For our listeners that are listening to this thing, th th it's free. The admission to listen to these episodes is absolutely free. The only cost that we ask is just like Jason Coombs said, share this, right? You never know who it can affect. Jason Coombs, thank you so much for coming on and being with us today. My heart is full. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Beautiful. Good luck tomorrow in the Iron Man. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I had to squeeze it. that Smile in there. the whole time. Thank you for joining us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. This has been a production from a podcast studio.